0: Like you said, intersectionality just refers to the fact that our identities are complex. You're not just a man. You're not just a white person. You're not just, I don't know, a heterosexual. You're not just educated. All of these axes come together to shape who you are and how you experience life.
1: Let's be honest talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes.
2: Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio.
1: Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. Uh, there's a lot of subjects to cover. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we got into what we did here in Alabama through Tactical Faith and our nonprofit. Uh, there's so many things that we can think about, and there's so many ways that we could prepare for it. Um, one particular subject, uh, Shannon, of course, is our graphic artist uh, and also creative content manager. He's he's a lot more than that. Uh, but one of the things we've been talking about as Southern Baptist um, is the the idea of intersectionality, the idea of critical race theory—those things have been popping up now. Those those sound like very complicated uh, phrases, and they are. Um, but the Southern Baptists have been dealing with that. And when I was at the convention in in Birmingham, Alabama, in June, uh, we had something called um, it's it's kind of resolution nine, I believe, where it dealt with this particular issue. It was at the end of the convention. Uh, Nobody was in there, but they passed a resolution that said, we're going to start looking at critical race theory as a viable kind of hermeneutic, as a viable way of looking at scripture. Uh, For those who didn't know any better, it passed and it was, you know, it it was just gone with wind, right? But now it's starting to bubble up. People are starting to look at it saying, what is this critical race theory? What does it really mean? Uh, So we brought somebody who's been talking about that issue and I'm going to give it over to Shannon because Shannon's the one who brought this together and me and him both are going to, uh, uh, have conversation with somebody that knows better than we do on this issue. So go ahead, Shannon.
2: Oh, the pressure's on. Um, okay. Well, I, I was, uh, just briefly, I was talking to my friend Jay Watts, who we've had on this podcast before, who is, uh, he's got a pro-life ministry and, uh, I asked him if he knew anybody who was dealing with intersectionality and critical critical theory. I don't know if I said critical race theory, um, but I mean it's my understanding that they're kind of, sort of the same. Maybe uh, maybe they're it's a critical race theory is a subset of critical theory. Anyway, I have no clue. I mean, I'm just this is stuff that I'm just barely getting into. So Jay suggested Neil Shenvey. And uh, he uh, apparently, Neil, you became a Christian at Berkeley, which just that in and of itself, I would like to hear more about. Um, But um, so you, Neil, Neil was a theoretical chemist, right? Yeah. And uh, now you're a stay-at-home dad, teaching your children in a homeschool environment, and you have a uh, you have an apologetic ministry that that uh, or at least an apologetic website that you publish a lot of good content on. I read several of your papers about critical critical race theory, critical theory, intersectionality, uh, all of these other kind of buzzwords that keep popping up around and in, uh, in our culture and things that we're beginning to see pop up in theological discussions, uh, you know, one of the things that I've seen is people, people will accuse uh, a lot of, a lot of the larger uh, personalities within the evangelical movement of, of being already being kind of indoctrinated or having this, these kind of ideas percolating and, and and oozing out of, of their talks and stuff like that. Now, I don't follow a lot of people that, a, a lot of these guys, but it's it's enough, it, it, it's come up enough that I wanted to talk to somebody who, who had some wherewithal about this subject. So Neil, I'm gonna give it to you, sir.
0: Sure, Amanda, where to begin? Uh, so yeah, critical theory and critical race theory are are different, they're often confused. Critical theory is a very broad area of knowledge. It encompasses entire fields. So not just critical race theory, but also queer theory, critical pedagogy, cultural studies. Um, this critical critical theory would, would, in a broad sense, would encompass all those disciplines. Uh, you know, uh, feminism would be considered a, a form of critical theory, a critical social theory. So critical theory is kind of the way to think about it is it's the application of uh, the critical theory approach to race in particular. But critical theory spans far more than just race. They talk about things like race, class, gender, sexuality, gender identity, uh, physical ability, age. There's all of those axes along which we can separate society into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups. And a oh,
2: critical- yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. Well, I, I want to uh, since, since Matt had already um mentioned the the uh, what was it? The prop, not Proposition 9, um, whatever Resolution it was nine. in uh, what is it?
0: Resolution 9.
2: Resolution 9 in this SBC, and they the the idea there was that um, from my understanding, and I'm totally. Open to being corrected on this. My understanding was that they they started. You know, some of the people in the leadership said we want to use critical theory or either critical race theory as a um, not necessarily as a hermeneutic uh, as a hermeneutical tool, but as basically a good way to kind of filter our worldview. And then some other people kind of knocked it back a little bit and they changed the um, the verbiage within within this uh, this uh, uh, resolution. And what came out was a, a little dumbed down, but essentially it's, it sounded like to me that they were still that there was still in the leadership. They kind of wanted this idea to still be out there and be useful and uh, i guess they didn't want it to be anathema i don't know um
0: i'll, I'll tell you the so the funny the funny story so i was uh, i was i was in durham north carolina where i live during the day of the last day of the spc meeting and i someone sent me one of my twitter followers sent me a picture of this resolution that had been drafted i read it over and i actually tweeted out and said hey this this resolution looks pretty balanced i think it's a good idea because it says things." Your critical race theory shouldn't be just flatly rejected as wicked and totally false, but there's some serious problems with it, so we should really keep the Bible as an all-sufficient guide. It said it talked about extensively the sufficiency of the Bible to speak to all social ills and that, the, that critical race theory and intersectionality are insufficient to cure the ills they address. So I was like, okay, they're really, and they're saying it, and it's treated as a worldview that's bad. We have to resist it as a worldview. We have to resist it as this sort of absolutizing framework. And so I was like, okay, they're trying to balance, They so think balanced, but they're clearly aware of the dangers. So I tweeted out and said, hey, this looks pretty good. We should support it. And I started getting all of these crazy tweets. People were angry at me. Why are you supporting this thing? And how could you support it? So I, 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 got, I got text messages from people. I was like, how do you have my number? <laughs> they, they were saying, can you come speak? I'm like, speak where? I'm in Durham. They thought I was at the convention anyway. Here's the, as I understand the background, here's the, here's the thing what happened. So Stephen Michael Feinstein was the guy who originally um, submitted the resolution to the committee, and they looked at it, the original form of the resolution, they thought was too uh, strongly worded. It didn't seem um, very precise, didn't seem very nuanced. And so they took his resolution, basically flatly condemned critical race theory and intersectionality as these godless ideas. And they said, let's be more nuanced with it. They, they they changed the resolution significantly. They reached, they put it before the floor, and since then, Feinstein, who I've talked to a bunch on Twitter, he actually said yes, I agree with them. The original form of the resolution was was not precise enough. Um, this but, is the guy from
2: California, right? The
0: guy from California, right? He said I agree that they they should have tweaked it, um, and then but the problem, and then I saw that 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 later form of the resolution, which I thought was pretty balanced. And the funny thing is the people that were not there at the convention, uh, who also are also conservatives, who are concerned about critical race theory, when they read just the text, the text by itself, they all supported it. People that I personally knew who were not there said, yeah, this is pretty balanced and pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's okay. But it turns out, I think what happened was at the convention, people heard about the original they saw the changes that were made, which sort of made it much less stark and condemning and almost seemed like it was making it positive towards critical race theory. And then they thought, oh my gosh, they're trying to smuggle critical race theory into the convention. So they got upset. Tom Askell proposed an amendment, which I think would have been a good kind of amendment saying, hey, it's more than, so (laughs) apparently one of the speakers said, well, critical race theory is just a neutral analytic tool that's not right either. That wasn't. That was not in the resolution. It didn't say it's just an analytic tool. It said it is an analytic tool, which is not quite right either. But the bottom line is that I think there's a lot of confusion uh, around this resolution. What I would say number that was one, my
2: impression. What you just laid was, out. That was that was. And I, you know, I have not looked into it. I, you know, uh,
0: I would. What I would strongly recommend. It's a. Re, it's a very short resolution. I would absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Recommend. I,
2: yeah I have read it now.
0: <laughs> read it. Yeah people so that for example the idea that CRT is being used as an as a, being recommended as a hermeneutic that is literally not in the text at all anywhere it's just not in fact if you look at the text the actual text it never says Christians ought to use CRT they should use CRT it merely says that some evangelicals have used CRT and found parts of it beneficial and i get i can confirm that that's true i can give you examples of how critical race theory the ideas that are, used, that are in critical race theory, they can be very selectively applied in a, in a pretty neutral way. However, I would hasten to add, what the resolution left out and should have included was that these ideas are also embedded and emerge out of a very, very dangerous and unbiblical worldview. And so we have to be very careful to test all of these ideas and claims and reject emphatically that I think, I would say the foundational claims of critical race theory and intersectionality are false. So while you can abstract a few ideas and and tools from it, I'll give examples, we should be very careful. It'd be like talking about, the the example I like to give, There are a couple, but it's like talking about feminism or like talking about um, uh, biblical studies, right? Can you condemn biblical scholarship as a whole? No, you wouldn't want to do that completely because like what do you condemn like text criticism like you, you know How do you get the Bible? Well, you got to go through the, the sources and the text and figure out which ones are the most reliable So that's fine. But can you say well biblical studies as a field is wonderful and great We should all just embrace it wholeheartedly and uncritically. Well, no, because there's lots of biblical studies out there That's it's actually not good for Christians to embrace so there's a, there's a very a nuanced approach to these ideas. And so I think, I know from speaking to the people on the committee, um, they were trying to aim just for precision and nuance. They were not trying to smuggle CRT into the SBC. And when actually, when um, Feinstein proposed a new amendment, a resolution in, in the California SBC, um, Trevin Wax, uh, Curtis Woods, Keith Whitfield, all supported the new resolution, which was much more, incisive and rejected critical race theory as a worldview very clearly, so they supported that amendment. It didn't end up being even coming to the the floor, but the point is, I don't think they were were part of some grand conspiracy, in fact, I'm sure they were not, to smuggle CRT into the SBC. Um, I think they were just trying to, like I said, provide a precise statement, both acknowledging that it can be useful and yet that it also can be very dangerous. Does that help?
2: Uh, yeah 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 these 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 things um like you had mentioned intersectionality, i think right. maybe maybe you mentioned that to me in a text message, or maybe I read it in one of your papers about how intersectionality is probably the the least controversial part of critical theory in general, i guess, if critical theory is kind of the umbrella here um and uh you know I get it right, so like intersectionality seems to say that like. It's a, it's a, let me see. I wrote this down a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of one's social and political identities might combine to create unique forms of discrimination. Now that last part, unique forms of discrimination, I would like to reword that to say to create unique perspectives or perspectival ideas or, help shape your worldview, you know, because I mean, there are, there are obviously a a number of things that, that, that shape each one of us. Right. So like Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, the example that that's usually given, or maybe I read this in one of your papers was that, you know, like you have a black woman, right. A black woman doesn't just know what it feels like to, to, to experience racism. She also knows what it feels like. To uh, to experience sexism, mm-hmm. right, and so then you have her being able to relate to more than one different type of group, right, and yeah. and so these that this this is where where like the 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 things that kept popping into my mind two two genetic fallacies that just like whenever I was reading this stuff is like a straw man argument and uh and the genetic fallacy those two things seem to just come to the forefront of my mind whenever i was kind of reading these things and it just you know it seems like a lot of critical theory props up a straw man that is pretty easy to take down so i'll, I'll i yield back to you
0: yeah so intersectionality the in the This whole field is plagued with um, equivocation and sort of it's the, the words are defined in strange ways or they can be defined narrowly or broadly. So narrowly, like you said, intersectionality just refers to the fact that our identities are complex. You're not just a man. You're not just a white person. You're not just, I don't know, a heterosexual. You're not just educated. All of these axes come together to shape who you are and how you experience life. Now, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality, I think in 1989, because she was looking at um, the experience of Black women. I think it was at GM, General Motors. And she argued that, so the question is, do Black women face discrimination? And she was saying, GM could say this. GM could say, no, they don't, because look, we have plenty of Black people, and we have plenty of women. So we don't discriminate against Black women. But her point was, wait a minute, you could have lots of Black men and lots of white women, and no black women at all. So does that count? Can you just say, see, we're not discriminatory because we have lots of blacks and lots of women. She's her point was, you have to treat, you have to notice that sometimes these identities can overlap in unique ways that, so you can't just say we're fine, we're not we're not discriminating because as long as we have plenty of blacks and plenty of women, we're okay. That in fact, black women constitute a, a sort of uniquely oppressed group uh, that they can't reduce, be reduced to either their race or their gender. And actually the Supreme Court, I think, didn't did, ignored her ideas, but in principle, it's just a good point. So the way I like to frame it is that we use that analysis all the time in very fruitful ways as Christians. Here's a silly example, but it's obvious. If you go to your pastor and you want to start a, a single mom's ministry and he were to say to you, well, that's ridiculous. Why? We already have a mom's ministry and we have a single's ministry. Why do we need a single mom's ministry? I mean, gosh, that seems like overkill. And you'd say to him, well, that's, no, no, you don't get it. Because a single mom might have unique needs that a single person or a married mom would not have. A single mom, and we have, our church has a single mom's ministry for that very reason. Or why do we have women's homeless shelters? Why don't we just have homeless shelters? Why don't we just have women's shelters? And the answer is, well, because homeless women are uniquely vulnerable in a way that a homeless man or a rich woman is not. So the point is, and you say, well, that's common sense. Okay, maybe, but it's still, you're using this idea that our identities are complex. We can't treat people as if they're just, oh, you're just a man. You're just a woman. You're just a black person. You're just an Asian. You're just whatever. You're just rich. You're just poor. Um, Wasn't it the
2: Canadian, uh, there was a Canadian women's shelter that's been under attack by uh, Trans activists, and they're basically like the Canadian government or the, the 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 local municipality came in and said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna enforce, you know, uh, I don't know sanctions or whatever they do in Canada. They're gonna they're just gonna sue them and and force them to accept trans right. women, which is basically a dude in a skirt, yeah, right. uh, into a women's shelter that is supposed to be there specifically." to help protect them. And so this is this is the funny thing to me is that you've got this theory being applied and you've got you've got the people who are advocating this thing and they're they're beginning to they, they seem like it's like a snake eating its own tail at this point in time, you know?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of tension for various reasons. There's tension within this sort of I mean like I said, queer theory is broadly part of critical theory. Um, but there is tension between say queer theorists and trans activists and um, modern feminists because uh, they're now actually, they have the derogatory title of trans exclusive radical feminists. Oh
2: yeah. I've seen that.
0: Yeah. Because there's a battle because between them, because radical feminists are like, no, you can't, a biological male cannot just declare himself a woman. That's not what makes you a woman. Whereas trans activists are like, well, that's transphobia. So there's actually a, a strange situation in which conservative Christians are kind of like uh, on the same side on this issue as these radical feminists, because they all, we would also say, well, yeah, that's right. There's something essential about being a man or a woman. It's not just a better identification, but that's a, that's a, that's a way down the road in terms of understanding critical theory. But it, it, it just points to some of the conflicts that are inherent in these ideas.
2: It does seem like, you know, I, I went to a liberal arts university and there was a lot of conflict between different the different uh, disciplines even within even within the art community right so there was Mm -hmm. tension a little bit of tension between the sculptors and the ceramicists and the painters because everybody was vying for money yeah and at some point in time it seems like that's that's a little bit of what's going on is that you've got a lot of different groups that have kind of morphed into political groups and they're all essentially kind of vying for for for, for the the pot that's out there, right? That's uh, that's available through you know donations and or you know through five hundred one c threes or or whatever. You know, it's, it seems like there's a little bit of you know. I'm 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 old school, right? Mm-hmm. Power, sex and money, right? Those are the three motivating factors for most, yeah. most people. And it seems like that's got to come into play at some point. I'm one I think, of those.
0: Actually, in this case, I think it's more has to do with in a strange way with power. And, the, and it's, it's because of the way that um, the way that critical theory, and I, I'm speaking of critical theory in a contemporary sense here, the people, the activists you'll see today on college campuses, in academia, within the progressive movement, within the social justice movement, they're using it. A, um, a branch of critical theory, which for lack of a better term, I'll con- call contemporary critical theory, which divides these groups into oppressed groups and oppressor groups. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that they, well, so they see all of social reality divided into the social binary of oppressed groups and oppressor groups. So you have um, oppressed, oppressor groups are people like whites, men, heterosexuals, the rich, uh, the physically abled. And then oppressed groups are women, uh, people of color, the poor, physically disabled, LGBTQ community and okay for, for, for there's a lot to go into so within contemporary critical theory the idea of social justice means overturning oppression and your goal your purpose in life what is considered moral and virtuous is to be on the side of the oppressed but the problem happens as you're seeing what happens when the goals and agendas of two oppressed groups conflict so what happens when you have say, the goals of transgender people with the goals of radical feminists in conflict. Well, then who do you choose? This is why you see this sort of weird tension, because they can't decide who is, I, I hate using this term, but the, the, the humorous term used is the Oppression Olympics. Who wins the Oppression Olympics? Which group yeah. is more oppressed and therefore can claim the right to enact their policies, their legislation, can, can, can compel the allegiance of the social justice community? That's what you have uh, the attention there. Um, Where are
2: and- the track? Uh, there, there's some track uh, st- or track athletes in yes. high school, like a young a young lady who has been who basically lost her positions because there were some right. some transgendered athletes that basically were breaking records left and right.
0: Sure. Men who were
2: saying they were young young boys who who thought they were think that they are female and they the the school said that's okay you can identify as a woman and they just killed it like just right. blowing records out of the water right was that in vermont or virginia
0: yeah, going in connecticut they've been so a totally
2: number,
0: number of different sports number of different um states and places it happened and again that that's where you see the issue becomes uh who is going to compel the sympathy of the social justice movement? Who is, who is, who claims the, the status as the truly oppressed person who needs our solidarity and support? Mm-hmm. And in that case, though, the female athletes, uh, were, even though you could claim that, well, women are the oppressed group, but yes, but trans women are even more oppressed than, than biological women. And they're even though they're that's the funny thing, and the, then the radical feminists would say, but even they're not they're not women at all, they're men, <laughs> they're not oppressed. So it's it's in this is why you have this tension. Who who compels the allegiance of the movement? And there's always been this tension. So actually, interestingly, um, there's some really interesting signs from the women's march in 2017 that I, I put you can pull up on Google. Um, but one of the signs, this is from the women's march. Let me read, I have it on my computer here. There's a sign from the Women's March is a woman holding a sign that says, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. And and why would she say that? And the answer is because even at a Women's March, which is dedicated to resisting Trump and, and opposing him and finding solidarity between all women, she's saying, look, the idea of intersectionality, the idea that Uh, We're more than just women, we're also women of color, so therefore we can't assume that the agenda of a woman of color is identical to the agenda of a white woman, because you all voted for Trump. She's expressing that in her sign. There's another sign, I think, from the same marks that says, um, it says, feminism without intersectionality is just white supremacy. And there's a lot of critiques from black feminists of what's so-called white feminism. They would just, they would actually, some of them have even claimed the label of a womanism. Uh, they, they don't want to be called feminists. Black feminists sometimes call themselves a woman—womanists because they want to differentiate themselves from the so-called white feminism, which tends to center the concerns of, you know, educated, rich, middle, upper middle class, white femi- white women. They would say our concerns are not your concerns. So that say, I think that kind of tension is the kind of thing you're seeing with the conflict between radical feminists and the transgender activists.
2: So, so bringing this back, so you know, some of that is uh, out in the culture. I mean, it's 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 all over the place in the culture. Yeah. Um, I think I think my question is how how is this negative so i can see where some of this would be okay uh thinking about some of these ideas being able to be alerted to some of these ideas and be like okay yeah i kind of see where they're coming from but there's there's a lot of uh, there's i got a bad taste in my mouth already with a lot of this stuff and so and i i think that i think that a lot of it came Came to fruit um, during the election, right? Whenever you had so many people in the evangelical world treating with with severe contempt, people who were willing to maybe not, maybe they weren't even really willing to vote for Donald Trump. They were just willing to vote against Hillary Clinton or against the Democratic Party because they had strong convictions about uh, say life, life issues, right. Concerning abortion and being pro-life. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people just have, have that, that conviction right off the bat and have a hard time finding anybody in the democratic field that they're willing to vote for. And Hillary Clinton was obviously gung ho for Planned Parenthood. So they're like, well, if it comes down to it, if I have to choose Donald Trump, I will, and I will, I'll I'll pull, I'll pull that lever for Donald Trump. And there were a lot of Christians who were already saying things like, and I, I don't, I don't think that Donald Trump is a racist. I'm not here to defend a man in any way, form or fashion, but I don't think he's a racist. Right. And, but, and, and I think that there were even, if, if it has been proven in the last three years that he was a racist, when he first got elected, there was there, I didn't see any evidence that the man was a racist. I saw him popping off a lot, saying a lot of goofy things, you know, but racism wasn't the thing that I saw, but that was, that was typically the thing that I saw lobbed at him over and over again with, within the evangelical world and also there was uh, there were several prominent Christian uh, evangelicals who who were in the public spotlight, and they they were lambasted for giving even tacit approval of the man. And so I I'm not sure that that's where this is coming from. This idea of critical theory and other things like that, you know, but it, it seems to be in the water though already in a lot of places.
0: Yeah, so definitely the, the election of Donald Trump exacerbated or, or fuller, further polarized people on both sides of the aisle, I'd say. Um, but critical theory and critical race theory, they've been around for decades, even they're even growing in popularity uh, for a long time. But I would say actually, I think the recent, what re- really spurred the growth of critical theory and critical race theory in recent times were, were several things one, I would say uh, the issue of, uh, the LGBTQ movement and, uh, mm. gay marriage, uh, same-sex marriage, trans activism. The other thing would be, um, Black Lives Matter. Um, Black Lives Matter, the organization is, if you read their writings, they're pretty transparently rooted in the ideas of critical theory and critical race theory. Mm. Um, and so in, in the, so the shootings of people like Trayvon Martin, uh, uh, the death of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, things like that. Um, they really catapulted these issues to the forefront of our, our consciousness. So I think evangelicals, many of us were seeking for ways to talk about race, to talk about racism, the Me Too movement, <coughs> right? Uh, the re- revelation of um, sexual abuse and cover-up within the SBC in Texas. And I'm sure all of, I mean, all over the U.S. has had examples of it. But all those things were happening. And we've been trying as evangelicals to to find language, find a framework to address these issues like racism, sexism, abuse, etc. And that's a good thing. But I think because of that, we've latched on to these ideas from critical theory. And that's not such a good thing. I think that in fact, they're going to do the opposite of what they promised. They're not going to bring greater unity, greater love, greater peace. They're going to actually destroy unity and end up because they're, they're rooted in a very unbiblical way of seeing the world. Um, so I, get a, I, I want to take sort of, again, the, I, I supported Resolution 9 because I want to take that nuanced approach. I don't want us to reject critical race theory completely uh, in the sense that I want to reject the elements of truth that it For example, one of the primary tenets of critical race theory is that race is a social construct, right, that, that we have created the idea of race historically, um, of course, there you know there are such things as ancestry. You know, we come from certain continents, we have certain colored skin, that's reality. But the idea that you can lump together, and think about it, you're really gonna lump together an American, uh, a person living in France, a person living in like Russia, a person living, in, we're, all, we're all the same, we're all white. We have totally different outlook. You know, a Muslim living in Russia and a Jewish person living in France and a uh, progressive living in Oregon and a conservative living in Texas are not just all white. I mean, they're just very different culturally, politically, religiously. And and then in, the, in terms of just even in terms of how we, how we think about things sociologically, uh, I, the example I use, I actually got a lot of hate mail from, what, from actual neo-Nazis. They don't, they don't like me for saying that race is a social construct because they, of course, they want to believe that race is a really important thing and that people can be ranked in a hierarchy of, of racial groups. Um, but one of the things I point out is, take a, a, a black man in the US, who marries a white woman, and they have kids. The kids will typically get raced as black. They kind of look black, they might have hair that looks like black hair, they have dark skin, and you'll race them as black. But the funny thing is that in the US, the average African-American has uh, 20% European DNA. And so a biracial child will have majority European DNA even though we will call him or her black, Mm. which just shows you, again, it just shows you that just genetically, like we, the way we think about race is just based on our conventions, right? The fact that we look at some dude from like Brazil or, uh, you know, the Ivory Coast or, or, or anywhere. And it say, Oh, he's black. And it will conflate these huge ethnic groups. Or we look at the person people from Asia. We're like, Oh, he's Asian. (laughs) Like there's an difference between Japanese people and Korean people and Chinese people and people from Vietnam. Oh, he's Asian. That whole thinking is a social construct we developed. Yeah,
2: I had a friend in college, and she she looked at me and she said, "I'm not a carpet." <laughs> what? When she said, "I I I introduced her as being Asian," and she looked at me and she said, "I'm not a carpet," and like an Asian carpet.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. yeah, and I took it. I understood where she was coming from. I was like, "Sorry," and we were friends. You know, don't get yeah, me yeah.
0: wrong. My point is just that. Okay, so that, so that but here's my point. If you look up critical race theory in actual books of critical race theory, that's like their number one, tenet number one is race is a social construct. And they'll point to things like um, their books like How the Irish Became White. I think it's Noel Ignatieff. He talks about how when the Irish first immigrated to the U.S. in large numbers, they were not considered white. They were considered Irish. And not until they assimilated and sort of, and sort of became a, a, a accommodated to the culture, then they were like, okay, now, now you can be white. The Italians know, the Polish immigrants. They,
2: they call are, them black Irish, right?
0: Yeah, I mean I don't I don't know the history, but the, the exactly, but the point is I think it's definitely true that they're, yeah, they yeah, and they were they were definitely despised. Yeah. And they became assimilated into oh, okay, you're just white. You're fine, you're white. And the point is we expanded the category of white to include these various immigrants who were otherwise labeled with their ethnicity. That just again, it shows how what we think of as white is the product of this long process of uh social development okay now now do you want to do you, as christians do you want to like deny that do you want like no 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 no. you know uh, i did not know i deny that racism i want to uh, you know i think no actually as christians we should absolutely affirm that from one man god created all men right that's like acts 17. yeah Affirm that absolutely <clears throat> that these divisions of white black asian they're not they're superficial they might be socially constructed but ontologically we're all made in God's image which is why racism is wicked because you're you're despising people because of a category that God does not recognize God does not look at you and say you know you're you have value because you're white you have value because you're black God recognizes ethnicity and the, But that is the
2: exact thing that seems that critical race theory emphasizes uh, to its own, I mean, it, se- it seems very hypocritical to me because it's, it, the, the thing that they're trying to fight against is the thing that they're overemphasizing, right? I mean, it, I, I want to see the American experiment that has been informed by Judeo-Christian ideas. And, you know, of course, nationalism is even a bad word now. Uh, but the fact that we are a nation of immigrants, right, and we are also we are also a melt we're a melting pot of people, mm-hmm. and we're all coming from different different backgrounds. But that that we we're we're agreeing to disagree on a lot of stuff, and we're going to move forward. You know, with with this basic this basic idea that 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 is laid out in the Constitution, right. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not necessarily, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not overly, an overly patriotic guy, but I I see that as a better way forward because if, if, if we're all here united under the same flag, then we can be different. We can be black, white, Christian, Jew, Muslim, but we, we are all Americans right now. And so like that would, I guess that would put us, uh, you know, at odds maybe with Canadians, but we're not yeah. in a fight well, with them. But you, you, you get what I'm saying, though, a yeah, little yeah. bit, maybe. And
0: so that so this is what this is where it's it tricky, though. So all I'm saying, though, is that at least that first core tenet of critical race theory, which is that race is a social construct, we'd want to affirm. We wouldn't want to be like, "Oh, well, that's garbage. <laughs> that's critical race theory." No, that's just actually that's a place where critical race theory would overlap with a biblical view of human nature, we'd say, they're not identical, but they're, 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 they both recognize that these categories, these broad categories that lump people into these races, it's not the right way to, to think about human nature. However, a second core of critical race theory was this idea that colorblindness, as you described, like this idea that we should just not see race, mm-hmm. it, it pre- rejects that. So it would say that actually colorblindness Will never solve our racial problems because actually, and actually, colorblindness is a way in which the white ruling class, the white powerful class, uh, preserves the status quo. So, the, so here we say this is exactly why we need. Oh yeah.
2: So this is this is where the straw man comes in, right? Because any any time myself as a cisgendered white nationalist male uh, oppose. The idea of critical race theory, I am—I'm just—I'm just trying to enforce my the strength uh, and my my longstanding social ability to lord it over other people, right? And so, anytime I'm I'm opposing this idea specifically, I'm actually being racist, right?
0: Yeah. So that's uh, again that yeah. So. Critical theory, as a discipline, going back to the Frankfurt School in the 20s and 30s, believes that um, the, that one of the ways that so, that powerful groups or powerful the, the ruling class, however you want to phrase it, one of the ways that they prevent um, people from rejecting their ideas or, or sorry, rejecting their dominance. So why? So okay, Antonio Gramsci was a neo-Marxist thinker, very very important. And he asked the question, why don't the working classes revolt? They, their lives are terrible. They're oppressed by the, the bourgeois. Why don't they revolt? And he, has, he had the idea that they, they actually give consent to their own oppression because of what he called a hegemony, that the ruling class, in his case, the, um, he's looking at the rich people, the owners, the, the, that they had hegemonic power, meaning they promoted certain ideas that justified their own dominance. And so the the working class bought into those ideas and therefore consented to their own oppression. In the same way, critical race theory would say that the the interests of whites, the interests of powerful whites, is portrayed as colorblindness, it's portrayed as the rule of law, portrayed as neutrality, when actually those are just sort of excuses. For to maintain the status quo, which involves whites being on the top of the racial hierarchy. So you're right that many times, like in Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, if you say, no, actually, I really don't think these ideas are good, I think there are problems with them, then she would say that, yeah, actually, you're just trying to preserve your power and privilege. You're, you're not, you whether or not you truly sincerely believe that, say, colorblindness is a good thing to which we should aspire, in fact, you're just perpetuating your own privilege. And then that's, I think, I would say, if I had to point to the number one most dangerous idea within critical theory in general, critical race theory, it's the idea that we we should be able to ignore the actual arguments people are making and look at their motives instead. So rather than saying, huh, is colorblindness good or bad? Yes or no. Is that true or false? We say, well, let's ignore that question and look at, oh, you only say that because you're interested in preserving your power. That's Which is dead.
2: a textbook, textbook case fallacy. of the genetic fallacy, right? Course, I mean,
0: absolutely. It's called. It's, um, C.S. Lewis called it bulverism. Bulverism is C.S. Lewis's term for this shift, of, uh, shift from focusing on the truth of a person's claim to their hidden motives and psychology and agenda. Yeah. So he an example of a man who says, you know, I added up my bank account and I found out that I have a certain, you know, 2000 pounds in my bank account. And rather than looking at his 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 math and saying, well, are is he right or wrong in adding these numbers up, you say, oh, of course he'd say that. He wants it's wish fulfillment. He wants to believe that he has 2000 pounds in his bank account. Who wouldn't? But in reality, he's just projecting his wish onto reality. And Lewis comments, well, "That's ridiculous." The only way to find out whether or not he's right or wrong in his math is to check his math. You can't just project onto him all these wish fulfillment and aspirations and internal motivations. You have to check his math. In the same way, I'd say, with regard to a lot of issues in the church right now, if we walk into these conversations with the idea that we can pick apart people's motive, hidden motives and hidden agendas, and in fact, I would say that Christians have to, they ought to, biblically speaking assume the best of other people. So in fact, when you walk into a conversation about anything, assuming the other person has bad motives, they're trying to preserve their power and privilege. Well, I'd say even then you're sinning because you're, you're not treating them, one, as you want to be treated. You're not mm-hmm. thinking of them as better than yourself. You're not acting in humility. You're not being, so to speak, quick to listen. I think those rules hold for all Christians, not just oppressed Christians, not just oppressor Christians. We should all be seeking to think the best of other believers, and then meet on uh, and these questions. We should ask what is true and biblical, not whose interests are being, you know, being forwarded by this position.
2: That's a, that's an interesting point that you just made about the uh, the idea of kind of latching on to the to, to, to being the oppressed class. And there's there's obviously a sense of, of being a Christian, that Jesus is like if they hated me, they're gonna hate you. They hate the master, they're gonna hate the disciple, right? And so there's a little bit of that kind of that 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 idea at least is kind of it's it's there in Christianity. But it seems like this takes it and it it perver- perverts it and, and pushes it into a channel. That, that appeals a little bit more to like a negative pride, right? To the self-pity that, that kind of doesn't really lead us to repentance. It kind of leads us away and makes us kind of, you know, I, what is what is the thing that I, I, I heard in a chapel, a recording of something in a chapel given to students, and the, the, the pastor was talking about how insinuating strongly if not outright saying that you white kids should feel guilty about being white you know and i i'm just wondering if if like these kids have even like if that's even ever registered with them like or if that was a totally new concept that they were being introduced to at that point in time yes yeah, so it, yeah, it's, a, so that it's actually, an odd thing to me
0: the idea that say like okay the idea that Okay, so it's complicated. So people like Robin DiAngelo, who's probably the most famous critical race theorist in the US right now. If you've heard her book, White Fragility, is New York Times bestseller. She goes around speaking colleges, uh, you know, synagogues, churches about racism. But in her book, what she will say is that if you are white, you are socialized into racism. So basically, you know, all whites are racist. Now, here's the trick, though. What she says is she says, well, that's because she defines racism not as racial hatred. It's not what she means. Mm -hmm. Racism as a system in which you're complicit. Now, so you don't have to have any hatred at all towards people that aren't white in your heart. But but by default, as a white person, you are socialized into the system of white supremacy, and, and then she says, well, look, it's not your fault. You can't prevent that.
2: I've right. heard this idea coming from, from yeah. evangelicals.
0: Yeah. What she says is that, no, that's right. Now, interestingly, some of the more I have, I can give you quotes from evangelicals who will say, will go actually even beyond D'Angelo. And we'll say that things like, you know, whiteness is, you know, racism is in my DNA as a white person. Or racism is, you know, just, uh, I'm blind. I'm blind from birth. I need to be healed from my blindness. And there there are books that say this, written by evangelicals. And what she would say, though, she says, well, you're not morally guilty just for being white and therefore racist. You're not. But, but, here's the but. Okay. You, You can't, you can't control that. You can't control being born into a racist society. However, you can control how you respond. And so now it's your, now it's your opportunity to divest from whiteness and to take up the mantle of anti-racism. And if you fail to do that, which is the implication that is, and if you fail to do that, you are guilty. So Mm. it's sort of bait and switch, but it's what she gives with one hand, she'll say on one hand, you're not, you're not a sinner just because you're white. But if you fail to embrace my ideology, then you're guilty. So, and you don't her,
2: repent from the group. I mean, what does that look like? What book, does that look like for me? So I mean, spells, am, I, am I?
0: In her book, she spells it out. In her book, she spells out exactly what you need to do, and it, in Christian terms, what she's offering you is a way to atone for your guilt. Hmm. So it's a little bit different. So she's not saying. Is this
2: why liberation theology seems to be so mixed up with some of this stuff, and it works so well in you know, in like uh, in some Catholic
0: areas? It is fascinating. So the connection between, so I read a bunch of James Cone's writings uh, a few months ago. Um, I read Crossing the Lynching Tree. I read his Black Theology of Liberation. I read his uh, God of the Oppressed and For My People. And when I started reading those books, I was shocked because I had read a bunch of critical theory. Then I began reading James Cone. I said, this is so familiar. Like it's so related to critical theory. So but the thing is, Cohn was writing, his first few books were written in 69 and 70, which was well before critical race theory was developed in the 80s. And, so, and also, he didn't have any footnotes. So I had no idea, like, where is he getting these ideas? Because they sound so similar. And, the, and then the amazing thing was, his book, God of the Oppressed, the foreword for the 1984 edition, was written by Paolo Friere. Now, Friere is known as the father of critical pedagogy. So Freire read Cohn's first book, and he actually describes reading. He says, I was blown away. This is wonderful. This is exactly what I believe, too. So he and Cohn hit it off. So I thought to myself, this is so bizarre. How do they both arrive at the same ideas, but ostensibly, totally independently? Well, in, I think, in God of the Oppressed, in the text, Cohn says it, he actually says explicitly that his ideas, many of them go back to Karl Marx. Mm -hmm. And if you look at where critical theory comes from, it goes back to Karl Marx, not his economics, by the way. This is important. Yeah. It's his ideas about power. So Marx was the one who first thought about, one of the first who thought about, how does power create these structures which perpetuate social inequality? How does power blind people? How does ideology blind people? And how does it reproduce the ideas of the boor- the ruling class, the bourgeois? What he calls it is it produces a false consciousness. Those ideas are found in James Cone. They're found in the Frankfurt School. They're found in modern critical theorists like D'Angelo. So it's so like
2: cultural a, Marxism, right? It's like what 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 we would colloquially call it, right? It
0: is. Yeah, I, I don't like that term because it unfortunately it's been it's been used a lot by actual neo Nazis to promote these crazy conspiracy theories. But it. It is it, as a description, as a self-identification, it's used by actual academics. People do use it of themselves. So it's not like this, purely a conspiracy theory. It actually, an article that came out recently um, for the Gospel Coalition's journal, Thamelios. They pronounce it Thamelios. They have a, a long, excellent article on cultural Marxism, and the conc- really well, it's like 200 footnotes. And it, it shows that cultural Marxism is not merely a conspiracy theory. There are people in academia who use that term of themselves. Use it to describe this movement. It's a very mm-hmm. real thing. And that's some of the weird, the weird ideas, like there's a secret cabal of you know Jewish businessmen out to take over the world, is just that's just neo-Nazi conspiracy theory. <laughs> that's all crazy. But there is an there is there are people like Marcuse and the New Left in, in Britain who did call themselves cultural Marxists. And there are mm-hmm. scholars who refer to culture, refer to, to these thinkers as cultural markets. So it's not this just this purely conspiracy theory word. Uh, that that said, I prefer the term critical theory because there's no negative associations. So anyway, lo, lo, so what were we talking about? So, yeah, going, going back. Well, yeah.
2: No, I I think I think this is good. I, I wanted to. I, I know Matt. Matt's been pretty quiet. This dude's pretty sharp. I, I'd like to give him a chance to to jump in on some of this stuff. Maybe he's just been letting us go at it though.
1: <laughs> no, I just, <clears throat> I'm always thinking of the practical aspects of it. You know, our resolution in the SBC is non-binding to the individual churches, right? So the churches, each church is its own body, authoritative right. body. Uh, it, when the when the SBC takes a stand in the res, on this resolution, what it's saying is these are things that we should be thinking about as a collective group. So my question to you would be, um, why now? Um, I mean, what, what, what is it about this that we need to think about? And, and everything you're saying, I think, is challenging and true. Um, things I need to think about, but practically, how is this going to translate and how should this translate to an individual churches or associations, state level or county level, whatever? I mean, what what does the plain pastor and his layman what do they need to think about this to move forward? How can they think about this that helps them spiritually grow, form towards Christ-likeness, and how do they know what not to use and to throw out of their church?
0: Sure. So I'd say that there are two errors we have to be on guard against. I call them critical race theory alarmism and critical race theory denialism. You know, alarmism would say you know, every time someone mentions the word race or social justice – or sexism or anything like that. Whenever they say any of these words, they talk about racism. Oh my gosh, they're cultural Marxists. They're gonna infiltrate the church. We have to, you know, this is terrible. That's alarmism. And in fact, and so that's one error. And that's that's bad. And and actually, I'll I'll tell you why in a second. The other error is critical race theory denialism, which would say, you know what? Uh, There's no critical race theory in the evangelical church. No way, you know. uh, People making these accusations are slandering people. It's not true at all. Critical race theory is fine. It's just this neutral analytic tool. It's all it is. Well, that's not true either. And ironically, what I would say is both of those positions, they fuel each other. So if you're an alarmist who's always going around yelling cultural Marxism at everything that moves, you're giving credibility to people who are like, see, see, all we do is talk about racism and here you are calling me a Marxist. And that's, so you're actually helping them discredit your concerns. It's so fulfilling
2: what, the stereotype. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of, right? The
0: little boy, you cried wolf, right? If you call everything yeah. Marxism, and then when it actually comes, when something is actually dangerous and you call Marxism, they're going to ignore you. So you have to pick your battles. And in fact, what I would say is that the best thing you can do, I always tell this in my talks, the best thing you can do if you're concerned about critical race theory is to talk loudly and honestly about racism I kid you not because what there this narrative that's being sold is no one the only way to talk about race is by with, with critical race theory and I'm saying no and we have to show that as Christians we can uh, we can talk about race with an entirely different worldview and one that actually will build bridges and bring peace and bring love and bring unity in, in a way that is not going to destroy and tear down like critical race theory will so for example, I would say, read, start reading books about the history of slavery in the U.S., the history of racism, the civil rights movement, read books. Of, I would recommend uh, Dr. George Yancey. Is a, um, he's a Christian sociologist. It's Yancey with an E. There's a George Yancey who's a black non-Christian philosopher who is very progressive. He's not a Christian. But George Yancey with an E is... Uh, Wrote a great book called uh, called Beyond Racial Gridlock. It talks a lot about race. It explicitly rejects the critical race theory model, um, and it tries to build a model based on on um, a- a active listening and dialogue, not shutting people down, and listening to their concerns. Which I think is very, very gospel centered. Um, people like Carl Ellis is a great one to talk to, talk to, and th- follow on Twitter about racial issues. Um, Trying to think, uh, there's another one I escapes me right now. But George Anthony and Carl Allister, oh Lisa Spencer, she's not as well known, but she's on Twitter a lot. I really like her writing; I appreciate it. But there are a lot of people out there that are that are um, that are trying to approach race biblically and talk about racism. I and mean, racism is. I mean, you guys are in Alabama. I can't imagine that there are no racists in Alabama. I, mean, I, I don't want to stereotype here, but there are, and there are racists everywhere. And it's a sin, and we should say it's a sin as Christians, right? You I mean. We should call it out. I worked
2: in a I worked in a factory in Clanton, and uh, which is about an hour south of Birmingham, right? Which is the largest city in Alabama, and uh, and I mean, I saw it. I saw it on both sides of the line. You yeah. know I saw well, you know black black guys that they wouldn't sit at the table with you in the yeah, cafeteria. Yeah. No way. And if you sat down with them, they'd get up and move. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean. I, and then you know i i I'd, I'd see i'd see white guys you know that that would that would make 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 racial jokes and stuff like that but yeah so i mean it's it's there you know i just the thing that the thing that the thing that bothers me the most or maybe not the most one of the things that bothers me about this these ideas is that it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be very introspective for the oppressive, the oppressor, the quote-unquote oppressor groups, you know?
0: Yeah, the, well, because the, there is a built-in asymmetry between oppressors and oppressed, so um, this is where the phrase, you know, people of color can't be racist by definition. They, they redefine racism to be prejudice plus power, and so racism just can't, by definition, can't, uh, can't be something that a person of color can do. I would say, you know, as a Christian, Racism is a sin and sin is not based on your power or your group's institutional power. Sin is based on essentially your, it's against God. If you despise a person of another skin color for any reason, well, that's a sin. Uh, and so I think this that alone should give us pause when people have this definition, it's, it's asymmetric. And, but the point is, I think we need to talk about these issues and that we shouldn't be afraid of them. If we If we think that talking about slavery is Marxism? Then, then frankly, you're be, you are being fragile. I mean, come on, you'll be a snowflake here. Man up, talk about your history. You talk about the pilgrims and the you know the Mayflower and the Gettysburg Address and blah blah blah. You can talk about other things than that, right? It's part of our history, and it's a sad part of our history. It's a miserable part of our history. We should own it. Um, but I think coupled with that, so I, that's what I always say to, especially to conservative evangelicals, you need to read people like Tannehasey Coates between the world immediately read Imbram Kendi's stamp from the beginning, read these books by, you know, by people that are that are progressives, that are trying to, that have a totally different outlook on race than you do, but at least read them, at least know what they're saying, okay? And, and then at the, I think at a minimum, it will give you some appreciation for why uh, people feel the way they do. Uh, uh, Eric Mason is a black pastor, he wrote Woke Church. He has a, an anecdote in, this, in that book where he talks about how his father when he was when his father was a child was a young man he was he was dragged out of his home uh and beaten by a group of white men for a crime he didn't commit just beaten for you know no reason till his mother when his mother found him mason's grandmother when he found his dad she couldn't recognize him he was beaten so badly and then the white store owner came in and said no he's innocent that's it they went home nothing happened and mason growing up heard that story, and and he says, look, that's how I was taught to relate to whites. Like, Mm. is he being irrational? No, man, imagine if your dad was beaten up by, you know, you're a black guy, a bunch of white guys beat up your dad until he was unrecognizable. And you heard this story growing up, would you be, like, irrational to be a little bit nervous around white people? No, you'd be just sane, you'd be a normal human being. You'd have, now, and what, and then what should, okay, I'm half Indian, but what should you guys do? If you're a white person and you know that some of the people in your congregation have had these experiences, then you should be what? Should you say, oh, come on, get over it. I'm your brother in Christ. No, you should be extra sensitive. You should be extra gentle. Show them that you they can trust you because you love them because you're a Christian. And work to develop trust where, again, it's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's, again, it's the fault of evil out there that other people did, but you can end it. Right. You can break the cycle of fear and mistrust by showing love and gentleness to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's number one. But then number two, I would say we also have to explicitly name and reject these ideas. So I, I talk in my talks, I give a whole section about slavery, lynching, uh, modern day discrimination and racism. I, I talk for like 10 minutes about that. No one. That's an I. No one's out there calling me a Marxist. Why? Well, because I also make it very clear that the way that critical race theory is approaching these issues is wrong. And so I think we don't have to choose between, you know, embracing critical race theory or embracing racism. We can reject both. Mm -hmm. So we need to name, we say, here's what critical race theory gets totally, totally wrong. And not just say, as a label, oh, this is Marxism. We need to say, here is this idea hear people hear quotes from critical race theorists promoting this idea here's why it conflicts with the bible we need to be clear we can't just write it off and and, you know i think people are just want to be i I don't want to say they're lazy they want a shortcut they want to just be like just say it's wicked and then we'll be done with it that's not how we combat ideas you have to combat ideas by understanding them number one and number two showing why they're false. Don't tell people that they're false. Show them why, according to Scripture, that they're false. Um, and then also, and then, also know, and then point out when they're also true. You don't defeat a worldview by only pointing out that it's completely false and wicked. I mean, think about it. Why is it so popular? If it were completely nothing but lies from start to finish, people would just reject it. It's successful and popular because it contains elements of truth that get people to buy into it. So to combat it, we have to identify what it gets right and then show how that is gets, or gets you hooked where we point out that actually a Christian worldview makes better sense of these truths, which are captured only in part by critical the race theory.
2: Neil, you got, you got a little Southern preacher in you, man. You, you got a little <laughs> hot there. That I'm was from a...
0: Delaware. I'm not from the South. I, I...
1: <laughs> All Christians are Southern. No offense. So if you're a Christian, you got a little something.
0: I, I am Southern Baptist, though, right? So, I guess. So, so,
1: so I would say this is what we're trying to do, and this is what you're trying to do. We're just trying to get serious Christians to think seriously about concepts, be Berean in their outlook, but also look in Scripture. And there's there's plenty of, I mean, I'm thinking of just Christ doing His mission work in Samaria. Uh, in a lot of ways, that was that was the racism of the day was not dealing with the Samaritans and he, he chose to do ministry right there in a, with a, a, a people group that the Jews hated. You have an where Paul calls an a slave, his brother, hmm. which in a lot of ways, it just destroys the whole institution of slavery by yeah. saying this person is my brother. So it's not like scripture doesn't talk about these things. It's not like we don't have stories that we can point to. And I think, I thank you for what you're doing and the work that you're doing and coming on for such an extensive amount of time to help us think about an issue. And hopefully uh, you'll come on more and maybe we can uh, promote your ministry. And show who, where can they go to get more of your work?
0: Uh, if you just Google Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I, uh, you can find me. I'm like the only Neil Shenvi in the world. Um, and my website is shenviapologetics.com And I, I do a lot of, I, I'm on Twitter Probably too much, uh, but if you, I'm at Neil Shenvey again on Twitter, and I, I tweet almost entirely about critical theory and whatever I happen to be reading, which is almost and memes.
2: Sure. And you're, meme. a, you're you're a meme guy, right? Well, guy.
1: we're big fans, and as far as we're concerned, we're going to adopt you as 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 a tactical faith guy in Alabama. Okay,
2: great.
1: Um, you know, you'll have to say roll, Todd. You can't say war, war eagle. Uh, but you'll have to uh, come down and visit us more. And we thank you for your time and we're, we're, we're big fans now and we want to support you any way we can.
0: Well, thank you so much guys.
1: Hey, thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah.